Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Father, we pray that your word is expounded well in our hearts and our minds, so much so that we cannot leave here but changed. Pray that your gospel is proclaimed, those in the gospel are renewed, those outside of the gospel come to faith, and those yet to hear the gospel come to hear it. So in holy impression, I pray. Amen. Uh, I'm going to read for us the passages on which today's sermon is prepared. The first passage is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The second passage, in case you aren't following on the screens but have a Bible in front of you, Romans 1, 18 through 25. So Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight for the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As we continue our series on identity, we wanted to take three weeks and really make a base foundation to which the rest of the year is really going to be this culmination, really going to be this climb up a mountaintop to get to the point at which we can clearly say, this is my identity in Christ and be able to explain it well. We're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount before we get to Easter, and then after Easter, we're going to go through some of the epistles of John and talk about uh, some very, very interesting teaching in John, which I don't think we pay too much attention to. But that's, that's where we're going, and we needed this base foundation. And one of the, the foremost base foundations in the entirety when we talk about identity is actually fallenness, sinfulness. Now, you might be saying to yourself, fantastic. Uh, we're talking about sinfulness and fallenness and brokenness more and more. Here's, here's why. Here's why we want to talk about this continually. Here's why we want to be reminded of it. Here's why our base identity needs to be out of this understanding. 
Because if you don't know you need a remedy, you will never seek the remedy. If you don't know you are sick, you will never go see a doctor. If you don't know you need help, you will never seek the help that is offered to you. So actually, the very foundational elements of the Christian faith, the very first half of the gospel is this, I am far more broken than I ever thought. That's the first half of the gospel. And without that first half, you don't receive the blessing, the, the goodness, the redemption, the glory. I'll try to make this point by this quote. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a quote. If you've been anywhere in pop culture the last week, you might know where this quote's coming from. Let me give you a quote. If you don't know where it's from, I want you to guess who said this. If it was a, if it was a spiritual person, a, a pastor, or if it was a, who, whoever it was, I, I want you to guess who this is. I've been a scoundrel all my life. I've been selfish. I've been cruel at times, hard to work with, and I'm grateful that so many of you in this room have given me a second chance. I think that we are at our best when we support each other, not when we cancel each other out for our past mistakes, but when we help each other to grow, when we educate each other. Listen, when we guide each other to redemption. Now, doesn't this sound very gospel-esque? Doesn't this sound very spiritual? Doesn't this sound, we're guiding ourselves to redemption. We're, we're getting, we're helping each other with second chances. This is good, this is glorious, this is fantastic. Now, the person who said this has missed something. And actually, this is, this is where I want to go in the sermon. This sounds very, very grace-filled. And, and, and you could say this, I could, I could preach a sermon off of this. But it'd be lacking one key component. Uh, this was stated by uh, Mr. Phoenix, who just won an Oscar for his portrayal of the Joker this last week. And he got up and he gave this speech. And he said, we are all fallen, we are all broken, we are all in need of second chances, and I have been a scoundrel. And we all seek redemption. Here's what's incredible about this, and here's what I want us to realize today. He gets it. Oh, he's so close to the gospel. Oh, man, I pray somebody close to him is able to say to him, hey, you're, you're like 90% there. Just because we understand our fallenness, just because we understand we're scoundrels, we need grace, we need second chances, we need redemption. Two things really quick on this. One, redemption is sought by everybody. There's not a person I've ever met who says, nah, I don't want grace. Nah, I don't want second chances. Ah, I messed up, but get rid of me. Treat me as if I'm dead. Nobody does that. Everybody desires redemption. Everybody desires this, this culmination of a relationship that is built back together. And you know, you know what's lacking from his, this second point, you know what's lacking from his quote, his acceptance speech? How do we get it? How do we get it? He doesn't tell us how. He just says, let's work towards it. This vague, ambiguous kind of thing out there, this ideal, this hope, this prayer. Today, I want you leaving knowing this. We don't have to have a hope. We don't have to have a prayer. We have a fulfillment. We don't think what might be. We think what is, and we receive that. Today, if you can echo that, I've been a scoundrel. Oh, I pray that if you don't think that today, you become convicted. You're a scoundrel. I'm a scoundrel. If you are somebody who says that, who says, yes, I get that part of the gospel, I understand, and you say, but now what? Ah, today I pray that you come to see it's been given to you. We have the hope already delivered. Third, if you can say, yes, I'm a scoundrel, and yes, I've been delivered grace, I hope you then say, how do I live in that? 
Because what I've just laid out, I'm a scoundrel, I need grace, and I have it. Now what? That's the Christian life. The Christian life is realizing I'm far more broken than I ever thought, but I have the gospel, which prepares me to go out to do so much more than I ever had hoped for. So today, I hope you see that. And if, you had, if I could summarize it in one sentence, here it'd be, we've exchanged our identity from the creator to, to the created, which has led to death, but there's another way. We've exchanged our identity from the creator to the created, and it's led to death. But there is another way. How do we see that other way? First, I want to talk about what has happened, what does happen, and what will happen. What has happened, what does happen, what will happen, and the will happen, I I hope you leave filled, nourished, ready to go out. What has happened? In Genesis uh, chapter 3, we're told an incredible story. We're going to get to some key aspects. Uh, But in Genesis 3, we're told God has created things. There's an order to this world. We have this world in which we enjoy. We're put in the garden. We're we're called as as humanity to steward it, to care for it, to love it. It's the the beginning story of you and I, our our narrative with God. It's the very beginning. He said, this is the, the creation at which the story has began, my people and I walking together in the cool of the day, really, really loving life together, being in covenant, being continually connected. However, in it, we see a disruption. We see a breaking, a tearing of the fabric, and it happens by the serpent coming in and giving us lies and us believing the lies, and I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what has happened to us in which we're born into. See, at the beginning, there's this, there's this term. Every time you you read over the Genesis account of creation, God creates something, and then he says, it is good. There we go. And then he creates another thing. He says, it is good. And he creates another thing. He says, it is good. And then he creates one thing and says, oh, it's not good. And then he makes it right. He says, it's not good that that humanity is alone. I I will make a partner, and they will be in community together. Ah, now it is good. And as he's going through this, he he gives some stipulations. And he says, here's, here's my garden. Go steward it. Go care for it. Go tend it well. However, don't, don't eat of the tree of life because you'll, you'll die. Don't, don't do it. Don't, don't eat of this thing. My people, my, my relationship with you, I have created all this for you. Go enjoy. Go have fun. But I care enough about you to tell you don't eat of this. Now, you might be wondering, why did he create something that we weren't supposed to touch? I'm not going to answer that today. Sorry, I'm not even going to touch it. That'll be another time, another sermon, another... If you have those questions, I, I get geeked up kind of answering those. Come talk to me about it. Uh, but for today, I want to focus on the fallenness that we have already had, what's been given to us. Okay, so I'm deliberately blowing past this right now. I apologize. In the garden, he says, don't eat of this. And Adam and Eve are walking about, and all of a sudden, the serpent comes. And the serpent says, hey, Eve, did, he, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees? He says, well, no, he said we can eat of everything. We just can't eat of that one. And he says, oh, yeah, I get it. God doesn't want you to be free. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want your eyes open. And he says, wait a second. You're right. He's holding me back. He's holding me down. He's asking me to submit to him, which I don't. I can't. I have the ability to be more like him. I will be like him. And she gives in, and Adam gives in. And I want to talk about three things from this narrative in which we understand our creative relationship with God. 
One, I wanna talk about Satan's reality, Satan's way, and our response. The very first thing I wanna talk about is Satan's reality. Okay, this one I'm not blowing past. This one I must talk about. We read the creation narrative and we read Genesis, the fall narrative. We, we understand this story and we see the serpent, this person who is called Satan, who's called the deceiver, who's called uh, the advocate for evil. And we look at it and we go, hmm, that seems archaic. That seems old. Clint, do you really believe that there's this evil satanic presence? There's this, this really, really personal and real thing that is out there? Yes. Yes, I do. A couple things really quick. I'm just going to focus on this for two seconds, then try to move on. Satan is real. And let me just ask you one, one reason we could believe so. If you're, if you're like kind of skeptical, and you're like, ah, it's not really real. Okay, it's, it's kind of just myth or legend. How is that more myth and legend than believing in a benevolent God who is over all things and all powerful? How is it so much more to think that there's an evil presence who's not as powerful as God, but is rather still evil and still on the opposite end? Here's, here's my quick conviction to you. If you think, ah, Satan's not really real, my guess is you're somebody else who wants to say, well, we're, we're kind of born neutral. We're kind of born okay. And, and we just need to get better. See, what the problem with Satan and the reality that he is a, a real force is we have to come to terms with that force has impinged, has, has impugned evil onto us. And we live in that. So nobody likes it. Nobody likes talking about it because we don't know what to do with it. Because we sound very, I don't know, uneducated. Maybe we sound irrational, that there's this real demonic presence in the world. You're right, uh, we might sound that way. But let me give you a remedy for that. Because I think we do two things as Christians, I believe. One, we overemphasize Satan. Two, we underemphasize Satan. Either Satan is behind every corner or he's behind no corners. Either Satan is the reason everything bad happens or he's not real and he's not very powerful and he can't do anything. And both are a mistake. Both are a wild, wild mistake. And here's what I want to caution you with. If you think Satan is behind every corner, you don't understand the sinfulness that's in your own heart. You don't understand like those ready-made meals that come to your house. Which, By the way, this is the, really quick, this business practice is just the best. I can't believe this exists. Some, you are paying somebody to ship you food that you still have to cook. That is genius. I don't know how they did that. However, I'm going to use it for a moment. That is much like our sinfulness. We are a ready-made box with all the ingredients for sin and evil. And it just has to be put in the right order. Satan is not the one who has created this in us. He actually has invited us, and we've accepted the invitation. So he's not behind every rock. He's not the doer of all evil. He's not forcing you to do anything. The old phrase, the devil made me do it, is a lazy attempt to try to get out of our culpability. Conversely, he's not nowhere. He is some places. He is behind some corners and under some rocks. And our job is to discern that. Because if we think Satan is behind everything, we will approach our sinfulness with that mentality. We will try to excuse ourselves. But rather, if we, if we believe he's not there, actually what will come to be is, is we won't know how to fight, how to, how to come against the spiritual battle that is in our lives. Um, I'll try to wrap it up by saying this. 
A lot of times people come and they have questions for pastors or spiritual advisors, and these pastors or spiritual advisors will have all sorts of this very, very, very mature, complex answers to give people. Uh, they'll go on diatribes of authority and, and biblical exegesis and theological ramifications and just go down the list. And what happens is people leave not helped at all. Come and ask me, like, great, that was a fantastic seminary course, but I'm not helped at all. And we overcomplicate Satan at times because we think he's everywhere. We come up with these systems and we come up with these levels and we come up with these explanations of how to fight him. I had one person tell me they, they don't touch a certain part of their room because Satan is physically present in that thing and they don't go near it and they, they, they've kind of sectioned it off. And I go, I, that's, very, that's very superstitious. That's like baseball players who don't change their socks because they're hitting very well. That's, that's, that's not a, that's just in our head, in our emotion. And that there's other people who say, well, I can do anything I want because Satan can't touch me. Ah. I had a pastor who was giving some advice to somebody and he didn't know. He, he couldn't say, well, this is definitely the devil, this is definitely not. So here, here's what he did. He just prayed with the person and read scripture. He just prayed with the person who read scripture. He just prayed with the person who read scripture until something happened, until there was movement See, my caution to you is this. Don't think Satan's behind every rock, but don't think Satan's behind no rocks. He's some places somewhere. How, do I, how, how can you tell? It's for a different time. Wisdom is so needed in these situations. We cannot do black and white. We live in a world of gray, and yes, he's real. The second thing, since Satan is real, since we believe in a benevolent God, we can therefore picture uh, an evil created thing. Since he is real, let's talk about his way. Now, Genesis 3 tells us the way in which Satan plays with us. I want to tell you something very, very off, the, really quick off the bat. You and I are not at the behest of Satan. We don't have to follow the evil ways of this world. Actually, what we're going to come to, the third point, is we actually are invited and we accept the invitation. We want to engage in sin, which is very, very weird. Here's Satan's way. Look what he does to Eve. It's very, very wild. He comes to Eve and he says to her, God didn't really say you can't eat of any of the trees, did you? Do you know what Satan's done? It's very unique, and, and I apologize, because some of you come to me, and you, you, you talk to me, and I, many of you have pointed out I have a, this, I do this with my hand when I'm talking to you, and I go, ah, I do this, and you're like, what? And I go, ah, can I change one of the words that you just said? And I'm nitpicky. Uh, uh, somebody called me a vocabulary snob, uh, and I apologize for that. I'm <laughs> really sorry. But here's why this is so crucial. Look what Satan did. He said, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees? You know what he did? He substituted one word. What he should have said is, did God really say you can't eat of that tree? He says, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees? And look what Eve did. This is, this is wild. She says, it looks like she responded well. She says, no, we just, God said we can eat of any tree. We just can't eat and touch that tree. Now we'll get to that in a moment. We'll get to her response. That's actually, she, she played into his hand. But look at what Satan does, and look what, look what happens to us. <clears throat> he says, did God really say you can't eat of all the trees, any of the trees? He substitutes out one word, and he adds a little lie. He adds a seedling, a seminal understanding of a lie that you then fall into. He exchanged a lie, as, as Paul will say later in, in Romans. We're going to get a little commentary, a little sermon on Genesis 3. But he says this, 
Satan says to Eve, uh, it's, not really, it's not really good for God to say you can't eat any of the tree. Look, he, he's made all this stuff for you and you can't enjoy it. You can't indulge in it. You can't reap what God's given you. It's a lie. It's a small lie. It's a small fib. It's tiny. It seems insignificant. And yet, it starts the trajectory on which Eve and Adam will then find ruin. That's sin. Sin is not Sin is not this. We look at evil in the world and we say, somebody who's standing up and say, God's a liar and a horrible so-and-so. He's the worst thing ever created. That's not what Satan does. He doesn't stand up and give this incredible speech and, 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 and have these horrible things happen because that's really, that takes no discernment to find that out. That takes zero discernment and zero understanding to find out that's pure evil. If a crime happens to a four-year-old, I guarantee you, I could get, I, if I can get people geared up to go fight, to do Frankenstein pitchforks and fire and burn that person down, I guarantee you it's really evil. We say, that is evil. That is horrible. That is, that is inhuman. Satan doesn't do that. Because Satan's goal is to spin us off, <laughs> get us off course just a little bit, hit our trajectory just a little bit. It's like if you're flying from L.A. to Paris and you get off by one degree of your trajectory, you wind up in Africa, not in France. And Satan wants this to happen. The evil forces that are in us, that our hearts, we want to just get off just one degree because it's slight, it's easy, it's, it's overlooked. We can't all unify, unify and say, oh, that thing is evil. We all look at it and go, actually, Satan kind of has a point here. God, God, God says I can't enjoy his goodness. Maybe you've heard it like this. Well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Mm. You see what we've done? We've taken a true aspect of God. God wants us to be happy, and we've superseded it. We've taken a truism, and we said, yes, God wants you to be happy, but there's a comma. Just like at the beginning when God created everything, he said, don't eat of this tree because you'll die. I want to protect you. I want to keep you. I want to hold you. What Satan does, he says, he muddies the water. He confuses us. He gets us off by just a degree, and then our lives are in a totally different place than we ever thought possible. It is not the true evils of the world in which we need to be on guard against. It's the little nitpicky vocab words that we need to be on guard against. As we're going to come to find out later in John those will come and they will subvert the teaching just a little. They'll change just a, just a hair of the gospel and they'll infect the whole yeast, the whole church, the whole congregation, the whole body will be infected by one little tiny itty bitty change. Uh, I, uh, I'm gonna, it wasn't a good gift. It was kind of a gag gift. I thought it was a good gift. Uh, for Christmas, I gave Mike a t-shirt that says, uh, show me a verse. Uh, and he wore, he wore it one time just to appease me, and then he's probably thrown it away ever since. But we have this, we have this rule, as, we, we have this understanding, everything we talk about, everything we come back to, we say, show me a verse. Show me what you're talking about. Let's not just talk about random things of which our feelings are because it looks good and it smells good. It seems to be good, and yet, just like Satan, we substitute one word, we tweak it, and all of a sudden we're somewhere we never intended to be. The method of Satan, the method of, of, of heresy, Small changes that spin us off. That's the way of Satan. What's our response? Look at Eve's response. 
This, this should alarm you. Satan didn't come and say, oh, God's horrible. Follow me, I'm better. I love you more than he does. I'll give you your, your greatest desires. He doesn't do that. But look what, what happens to Eve Hart. She, she's given a chance. She's given a little change, and she takes it. She says, God said we couldn't eat of it nor touch it. Now, hold on, wait a second. Go back. If you go back in Genesis, all God says is, don't you eat of this tree. He didn't say you can't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. Now, why did Eve add that? That seems very odd. That seems, that seems weird. Why would, she, why would she add that? Why would she say that? Because here's what's happening. Here's what's happening in her heart. She's beginning to believe the lie and mature something and add things to God which he never said. How much of your life do you add things to God that he never said? Oh, I'm in financial ruin and now God must be showing me, must be testing me. How do you know? We're promised ruin in life. The Bible tells us, get ready for trials. Trial shouldn't be to you that I'm outside of God's will. Trial should be to you, maybe this is just how God's perfecting me. Maybe God's showing me something of his goodness here. Not, I must be hated by God. I must have sinned too much. I must have done horrible things. I must have made a bad decision. No, don't believe that. You're, you're adding a declarative thing onto which was never declared. Eve said, oh yeah, we can't touch it. That's the beginning of her change. And then she says later, she looked at the fruit and she, it was pleasing to her. You see what's happened? Do you see what Satan's done? He's, he's come in, he's given a trajectory. He said, I'm just gonna tick you off a little bit, just, just a couple degrees. And then all of a sudden, Eve fully jumps into it. She accepts it. Her heart is fertile soil for the lie. Church, your heart is fertile soil for lies. It takes little things here and there, and it grows it, it treasures it, it stores it up, and it's a hotbed. It just germinates like nobody's business. It takes off like no crop before. Our hearts are ready made to take lies and believe them wholeheartedly because she says, it's now pleasing to me. Look what's happened in the course of, of, a, of a five minute conversation. She's following God, she's walking with him, she's obeying. Satan says one thing, it throws her off and the next thing she looks back up and she says this, you're right, God doesn't want me to be like him. God must not really, God's holding me down. He really must not love me. He would never say this to me. He would never restrict me. He would never give me commands to obey. And all of a sudden she says, the other thing is pleasing to me now. This is our, this is our story. How many of you have had a bad experience in church and you said, I've divorced the church. I'm never going back. I'm never having it. I had a bad experience and now I'm going to find other answers, other remedies, other places. Isn't that the story of a lot of our neighbors, our friends? Maybe you're sitting here today having that experience. It's a little subversive lie that gets us off and our heart believes it. And we take one little thing and it now erupts and becomes our life. Satan said, he doesn't love you really. And Eve said, yeah, you might be right. Yeah. That, that is what he's doing to me. He's, he's holding me back. Don't believe the lie in your heart that says God wants good for me, and if he doesn't give me good, he must be evil, must be bad, and I need to go find good on my own. Oh, church, don't believe that lie, because if Eve had remembered, had gone back and remembered and said to the serpent, he doesn't want me to eat of that tree because he's protecting me, because he knows I will know life and death, and he knows that then all of a sudden my trajectory will be sinfulness forever. He's loving me. 
It's not unloving to make a fish live in your, a fish bowl, a fish tank. It's not unloving for you to keep that fish in there. What's unloving is to take the fish out and put them on the counter. That's unloving. The restrictions of water is life-giving. The restriction God gives you is life-giving. Don't believe the lie that it's not. Sin is ultimately what we wanted, and we, we dove into it. Our hearts loved it. There's a classic example of this in Scripture. Uh, Pharaoh is keeping the Israelites, and he's making them submit to him as king. And he's holding them against the will. And in Scriptures, this is a classic example. Everybody who has a problem with God, loving or unloving people, or choosing to love people or, or not, has a problem. They go to this Pharaoh narrative. And they say, look what God did to Pharaoh. He, it says in Scriptures that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you go, ah, look, look what happened. God doesn't love people. He makes them choose evil. Go back and read the beginning. Because you know what Pharaoh did? He willingly accepted evil, hate, sin. And he had several chances to repent, and he refused to. And God said this. He said, if you want it, I'm going to give it to you. I'm not going to hold you and bruise you. I'm not going to force you and kill you. That'd be unloving. How unloving is that to force something on somebody that doesn't want it? It's so unloving. It's awful. It's horrible. God says, if you want it, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you have it to the fullest. So go. Go enjoy, prodigal son. Go out. Take my money. Take my riches. Take my blessings. Take my goodness and go out. And what you'll find is when you're out there, you're going to hate every moment of it. You're unprotected. You're without shelter. You're without help. If you want help, if you want shelter, I'm here, I'm willing, I'm ready. But if you want sin, take it. Now, this should startle us. Oh, church, this should startle us. Let's combine that with Romans. Romans tells us, Paul goes on, and what he's actually doing, I hinted at the beginning, what he's actually doing is he's actually doing a little sermon on Genesis 3. He's going back and talking about identity. And he's saying this, it's really, really wild. It says in Genesis 3, God wanted them to, to worship and the, the, the creator, not the created. And instead, they listened to the voice of the created, not the creator. It's going to be important here in a second. The biggest sin that happened is they started listening to the voice of the serpent, not the voice of God. That's, that's the biggest sin, which led to the downfall. Here's what Paul says. Paul says in Romans 1, he says they, that God allowed them, gave them over to the, the lustful desires of their flesh, of their heart. They wanted to take it. God said, go have fun. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to keep you. If you want it, if that's truly what you want, go have fun. Paul is expounding on Genesis 3. And, he, and Paul makes this quick adjustment. He says, not only is it listening to a voice, it's actually worshiping the thing that you're following. He uses two examples, and we'll get to it in a second, the two examples. But Paul's main thesis in Romans is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? It means this. It means every single time we sin, every single time we choose somebody else's voice opposed to God's voice, every single time we choose the voice in our head instead of Scripture, what we're saying and what we're doing is we want that thing above God. What we're saying is I worship. My heart has affection for the thing that I'm listening to. That's what we're doing. Uh, anybody with teenagers understands this problem? You're listening to friends instead of the voice of parents that love you. 
You're, you're, you're scared of the influences outside of the home coming in and, and getting in somebody's heart. And you're, very, you're on guard all the time for what could be influencing and, and thinking into, sinking into the hearts of our children. We think that all the time. Why don't we do that ourselves? We're so militant on making sure that children don't have bad influences, outside influences, that they're hearing good things, receiving good things. Are you doing the same? That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, if you desire something, if you want something, if you choose to listen to something, you want to worship that thing, you'll die for that thing. Let me give you an example really quick to try to hit this home. How many of you identify as a mother first and foremost? You say, oh, I'm a mom. What happens when your kid sins? When your kid absolutely loses it at a party, starts a fight, flips over the table, the cake goes everywhere, juice is flowing off all manner of places, and you have to go in and grab the kid and and meekly sneak out. What do people think about you as a mother? They think, oh, geez, must not be a good mom, must not have control over her house. What's happening here? The thing to which we listen to, the thing to which we give into, the thing that we worship is going to be the thing we receive life and death from. Or how about this? Your kid goes off and does great things in life, and you go, that's, that's my boy, that's my girl. And all of a sudden, you puff up a little bit and you say, yeah, yeah, I'm so great. Okay, really quick, in all humility, was it really your parenting that did that? Like, in all honesty, can we say, oh, that's all my work there? Really? Or was it kind of in spite of you? <laughs> we succeeded as kids. See, what Paul is saying is the thing to which you chase after must bring you life and death and you worship and you love and you want affection from. He says in verse 25, Paul is clarifying the fall, the sinful state of humans. He says, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the created things rather than the creator. We listen to somebody else's voice other than God's. And it spun us off a little bit, and all of a sudden, we're down in the heartache, we're down in hell, we're without God. This commentary that he's talking about should startle you, should grab your attention again, it should shake you. Because what Paul is doing is actually very intelligent, it's actually very, very robust. It's, it's, he's doing it, this is a great sermon that Paul's doing here. He uses bodily intimacy as an example. He says, he gave them over to the desires of their flesh. Now, Paul here is talking about sexual relationship. Which really quick, I thank you, Arise. Last week, we had a sermon on Leah and Rachel and some pretty hard subjects. Uh, I didn't receive one email from any of you saying, how dare you? Thank you, church, for that. We're going to talk about sexual relationships again, part two. We're here again, so keep it going with the lack of emails. He uses bodily intimacy. He says they, dis- they disregarded their natural order for something else they wanted. They essentially said this. This is what Paul's saying. I'm trying to summarize. Very, very complex. Romans is, is very, very complex. He's saying this. We wanted the desires of our flesh without knowing how to use it well. We wanted all the power and none of the instruction. That's what Eve wanted. I can be like God? I want it. Hold on. Wait a second. You know what comes with that? If you're like God, you have to know all things at all times. You have to be benevolent. You have to be all-powerful. You have to be all-knowing. You have to love continually and sacrifice for yourself. That's what happened in Romans. Paul says, we gave up things for what we believed we wanted. We grabbed the tiger by the tail, and the tiger turned around and said, let's play. And we said, oh, no. What have I done? This bodily intimacy that, that 
Paul is talking about is saying this. You gave in to what you thought you wanted, your fleshly desires, your passions of the flesh. Uh, I watched The Sandlot last night with my kids, which, by the way, how is that not in the National Archives? I'll never know. As I was watching it, one of the, the statements that was said, Babe Ruth comes back in a dream to a kid and says, <clears throat> follow your heart, you'll never go wrong. Church, follow your heart, you'll always end in death. You'll always end in death. Why? Because our heart doesn't know what is right and wrong. Our eyes have been opened, but we don't know what to do with it. We've caught the tiger by the tail, but now we don't know the best choice of action. Paul is saying you have these bodies that are equipped for great things, and you don't know what to do with them. You're actually a slave to your own emotions, your own heart, your own chemical reactions. Paul is saying we're far too immature to know what to do with very powerful things. Why does scripture continue to tell us, please hold your tongue? When you don't know what to say, just be quiet. Why is it saying that? Later on in scripture, it'll tell us the tongue is like a rudder of a ship. It can steer so, it's so powerful, it's so incredible. And scripture says, if you don't know what to say, Shut up. Why? We don't know what to do with the power that we have. We don't, know, we don't know what's best. We don't know how to choose life instead of death continually. Paul later on will use a, another argument, and let me try to summarize it here. It's like military service, Paul is saying. What you worship, what you, a heart affection, the thing you're going after, the voice you listen to, that's how you align your life. Think of it in military terms. Uh, World War II, there was this fortune teller. Uh, and this fortune teller was uh, an ex-American citizen living in Germany at the time. She gets approached by these, these Nazis. And they say to her, hey, tell us these fortunes. She tells them fortune, it's, it's all good things they like to hear. And all of a sudden, they start giving her money. They start refurbishing her place of business. They start giving her more and more business. More and more soldiers are coming to her. And she gets rich, and she gets powerful, and she gets great. It's the American dream, really. She has a house, she has a great business, she has a great family, she has everything she's ever wanted. Favor, social acclaim. And the allied forces come to her and say, hey, we need you to help us out. You have, these people have entrusted themselves to you. We need information off of them. And she says, I'm not gonna ruin a good thing. I'm not gonna follow you. I'm not gonna go after you because this thing that I have is good. It's great, I love it. Look at what I have. I'm not gonna jeopardize that. And one of the gentlemen that comes to her says this. He says, Sure, you have it now, but what happens when they're in power? What happens when they rule everything? What happens when you don't give them a fortune that they like? What then of your life? See, the thing you need to ask yourself, what Paul is asking us to identify is to say, if we seek after that thing to which we think is good, what happens when you grab it? What happens when you get it? What happens when it's achieved? Will it be life for you all the time? Will it die for you? Will it serve you unending, or will that thing fail you? Now, I want to I try to boil this all down for us at Arise. I think our identity as Arise has been for a while. By the way, I, I said this last time. It really stinks when you guys give me the fodder to which I then get to go back like a mirror. When I say, hey, what's the one thing we all stink at? And you're like, oh, we really stink at outreach. Oh, we're really stink at going outside. Oh, we're really kind of all circling the wagons. We all kind of look at each other and we all really love each other. Great, fantastic. Let's talk about that. And here's where I want to culminate it. 
Is fellowship a good thing? Amen. Is fellowship with each other, sharpening each other, maturing one another a good thing? Amen. Is it the best thing? No. It's not, church. Is it good to, to, to have bodily intimacy? Yes, it's great. Do you actually know why Paul, later on in Romans, he, he expounds this further. Do you know why sexual sin is a sexual sin? It's not because sex is bad. Sex is great. Sex is good. Do you know why it's a sin? Because we've overemphasized it. We've made it our main identity. We've made it the thing by which everything is good and glorious by. Is money a sin? No. Is it a sin when we overemphasize it? Yes. Is fellowship a sin? No, it is when we overemphasize it. In church, hear this today. We've overemphasized fellowship. How do I know? I guarantee you there's people in this room right now who have yet to feel totally connected to this church because they're not a true South Dakotan. They haven't gone through all the iterations of Arise. They didn't come from the connection or the crossing. They weren't here at the building at the beginning. I guarantee you. And if you think, no, 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 we're welcoming, we're open. Think of this for a quick second. Think of the new faces that you've seen. How have you said hi to them or connected with them? If you're a new face, how many people have said hi to you? Or do we like talking to the same people we have all the same time because we enjoy fellowship in each other? That's great and glorious. Or let me, let me put it as finitely as I can. In scripture, it says, go make disciples of all nations. Has anybody been made a disciple because of your faith? And you say, no, 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 God clearly saves people. I agree, God saves people. We're just here doing good stewardship. I amen to that. But here's my question. When it says go make disciples, it is a command of scripture to go make disciples. If you are not making disciples, I must ask you, how do you know you're a Christian? I humbly ask you, church, with all audacity to answer this question. If you are not making new disciples, I must ask you, how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're not following the created order instead of the creator? How do you know you're not following the things to which you said, oh yes, it's good to be in fellowship. Oh yes, it's good to come to church. Oh yes, it's good to give. Those are all good things. But if those are more important than the commands of scripture that says go make disciples, baptizing them, telling Christ when he came, it's in, it's in the gospel. I promise you, I don't have much time. I'm already over. Gosh. Christ, when he came, his disciples were saying, hey, hey Christ, we, Jesus, we have all these people that we need to heal. Stay here and heal them. You know what he says to them? I got to go to the next city. I got to proclaim the gospel. That is why I have come. Christ is given the option to stay with people and love them, and he chooses to say no to go out and preach the gospel. Church, do you see that? I am not telling you that fellowship is wrong. Oh, church, don't hear that. What I am saying is if you hold it up, do a pie chart in your head really quick. How much of the time are you speaking gospel truth to those who don't know it? What percentage of the time? If it's anything less than the time you spend <clears throat> with Christians, it's sinful. If it's any time less than what you spend with Christians, it's sinful. Here's what Christ says. If no one is going to preach the gospel, guess what happens to the world? They all die. Is anybody besides the church going to preach gospel? Our movies, 
They might hint at it, just like Mr. Phoenix, Mr. Uh, Joaquin, uh, uh, Mr. Rivers. There's a hint, there's a taste, there's a little bit, but it's not full truth. You know who has the only way, only remedy that the world is ever going to get saved? The church. There's no plan B. We're it. How are we doing at it? Truly and honestly, how are you doing at it? Now, here's, here's the remedy. Are you ready for it? This, it's very simple. It's very e- I'm telling you, it's very easy. The more you worship a creator instead of his created, the more you will naturally do this. I promise you. The more you see God glorified, high, and exalted. I ruin lots of movies for you guys. I know that. I understand. I get it. I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry. I ruined Ad Astria last week for you. Go see it still. It's fantastic. Do you know why I can't help but talk about those things? Because I love it. It's fantastic. It gripped me. It hit me. If God grips you, you know what you can't help but do? Speak of him to those who don't have it. I promise you, church. The answer is greater worship, and that's where Paul ends. He says, we have exchanged the creator for the created, who is praised forever. You know what that tells you and I? There's a party happening right now where people are coming to faith. Are you in the party? Or are you stubbornly standing outside saying, it's not my way, folding your arms, saying, well, that's not what I want to do. That's fine. You could be the prodigal son and go live something else. Come home. Have the party in the Father's house with those who are being saved. It's so much fun, church. You'll never regret it. How many people die and regret? They say at the end of their life, oh man, I wish I would have done more with my money. I wish I would have spent more time with people I love. You know what people never say? Man, I really wish that I didn't spend so much time telling dead and dying people not to go to hell. Man, I really wish I didn't do that. No one. Church, God is inviting you to taste and see the goodness of his life. To sacrifice yourself. Why? So that you may live. Let's pray. Father, today, I pray from your scriptures, our identity is based first and foremost in your son, the creator, not the created, not the things to which you give us, but the thing to which is yourself. We don't treat you like a Coke machine that we get good things out of but rather we treat you as the Father Almighty, the head of the cosmos. And we follow what is good because you've given us what is good, that you are in us and we in you, and we are called to go make disciples of all nations. Father, the answer to which that is to praise the everlasting God. So Father, I pray right now that we are filled with the hope of glory and that we praise you endlessly right now. So as I pray, Amen. Stand with us and praise. Have your heart affections be aligned with Christ.